0: Welcome. So uh, in this episode, we're going to discuss the age-old nature versus nurture debate, uh, speaking with two extremely successful Fives players for insights into whether natural talent is hereditary or a product of our experience.
1: So there's been a few successful and famous and prestigious even Fives playing families, including the Dunbars, the Toops. But joining us today to decipher this question is the brother and sister combination from at least in my opinion, one of the most successful fives playing families of all time. Between them, they've won 10 caned championships, nine ladies' championship titles. Together, they've won 10 mixed championships, with Charlotta winning three more than her big brother. It's Seb and Charlotta Cooley. Woo! Welcome, welcome.
2: In terms of successful families you would mentioned the Dunbar's obviously I think uh, I don't know in terms of numbers of titles they might they might be higher than us but um see Graham Dunbar and Teresa Dunbar both parents have won um mixed or Aberconway cup or one thing or another um and yeah, I remember hearing about the May brothers as well it's always interests me about the game that um, back in the 50s when they won the Kinnead if you won it three times you then retired from the sport. And uh, there are reports that say effectively no one had any answers for them. No one could play any shots that they couldn't get back. And it uh, was interesting to see what uh, what would have happened if they'd carried mm-hmm.
1: on. That's really interesting. My mum is an adamant fan of rotation of once you've reached a certain success level for a certain amount of time that you should concede and you know let someone else take over. <laughs> so that's interesting that that actually used to happen.
2: It it did, and it only stopped with um, with Tony Hughes. Actually, he was the first who, having won three Canads, then didn't stop and carried on. And over the course of well, a, a ludicrously long span, I think over thirty years between his first and last Canad, he won nine of them. But uh, yeah, it was it was Tony Hughes who was the first not to. And then once that floodgate is opened, of course, everyone wants to go past um, the the record that now stands.
1: Amazing. So obviously, you are. A brother and sister combo but you aren't the only coolies that play are you
3: no so um we we have an older brother uh chris who also was a kined finalist i think um and he's the one that i won uh, my first three mixed titles with um and there's also another brother in between us um ollie who um is the power i think of the family he fair to say <laughs> he's um yeah, pretty, pretty muscular, hits the ball really hard. Um, and there's, uh, don't forget, Dad as well. So, <laughs> um, started playing the game very late. I think he just got fed up of uh, ferrying me to practices in the an evening and just driving around. So, um, at one point, he just decided he'd pick up some gloves and start playing as well.
2: I think he was 47 at the time. But, yeah, he um, really enjoyed it. I, I remember watching him for the, you know, for the first few years. If you start learning at at 13, 14, I, mean, I think you learn more easily and, and kids, you can tell people who have picked up the game later in life or who started playing at school. Um, so he didn't have that sort of natural movement about a court and he'd, um, he hadn't played any ball sports. He'd been a swimmer otherwise when he was young. Um, but there was one shot he could play, which is if the ball lobbed, if he's caught, the ball lobbed the buttress and hit the left-hand side ledge. He was able from, uh, pretty much from day one, to pivot a full 360 on his left foot mid pivot he'd ping the ball back around the corner that was his shot he was amazing at it it's the one shot he could play and, it, and lots of other things simply wouldn't work but this every time
1: we have to call it the john cooley
0: it is it's uh, it's absolutely his trademark shot. um we must chat sometime more about how you can wear down parents to start the sport um if they haven't played at school i think that will help our recruitment efforts and building our parental representation in, uh, in the EFA. A discussion for another time, but I'd like to hear your tactics.
2: Very simple. Put them at the back of the court getting cold watching and then ask if they'd rather be on court moving <laughs> and staying warm. I mean,
0: <laughs> Just uh, moving on to our topic of, of nature versus nurture then. Uh, the first one being, do you think being good at fives is in your genes? Personally, I think not. I mean, essentially, when it when it came to it at
2: um that's no which is where we well which is where i learned to play charlie learned to play on those courts and was at o for the sixth form but had already been playing a while the other major sport in the winter was rugby now i i'm very small now i was even smaller then and actually i had fairly quick hands and quick feet but uh, the coaches never tried to put me in as a scrum half or anything like that so mostly i found that rugby was being jumped on by two or three people twice my size uh, and, and getting frostbite in the process uh, never really sat with me. Uh, so fives was sort of the natural go-to because the other option would have been basketball. Now, I think there's potential genetic link with basketball. I think less so with fives uh, because you, you do get sort of all shapes and sizes of people. Uh, if you look at uh, John Reynolds, who obviously is, is on, on your last um, podcast, uh, yeah, he's six foot whatever else he's got the wingspan of an albatross uh, and brian matthews he played with is also a tall uh, gangly player uh, and yet you can you can have players down to jamie halsted um who was winning canads when i started who's uh smaller lighter than i am and uh you know, at both ends of that sort of size spectrum you can be uh, a good fives player. Uh, so I definitely think it's, it's much more down to what you've done in the past, whether you, the, you know, the games you've played, whether that's in the garden or in our case, possibly indoors in the, uh, in the living room, uh, to a promoted hand-eye and hitting balls around. Um, I, I think uh, there are some dents still in that wall and, um, and I can still hear uh, <laughs> here, our mother, you're not, you're not breaking them all again are you? But you know the, the shot that rattled underneath the coffee table remains my favourite, that was the equivalent of the pepper pot in the living room and there were hazards naturally around the place with furniture so I think spending hours doing that um, would have made much more difference than um, than any genetic advantage.
3: So what did you make as a buttress, Charlotte? Uh, that was the sofa wasn't it on one side? you had, had the sofa coming out from the wall on the one side. So that was, um, that was a buttress. And and uh, I'm still amazed that we didn't break more stuff. Right? <laughs> we, we did kind of move some things out of the way, but I mean, there, there was all sorts of things around that. I just, I'm, I'm just can't believe that we didn't just completely wreck it. Um, we did play with a soft ball, to be fair. It was, you know, just a sponge kind of thing. Um, I, th- I think, maybe we tried a few times with tennis balls and the paint completely came off and like immediately on parts of the wall and we got in quite a lot of trouble so (laughs) it was it was sponge balls only after that but yeah nice oh nice big flat wall and and lots of hazards because it's a living room and furniture (laughs) on the topic of uh sort of nature versus nurture you know I've I've been um I've a fives coach now as well, and uh, you know we we see kids coming through the school, and you you know you do see people who have a a natural ability. You've got natural hand eye, natural athleticism, um, and you can see that you know if they if they carry on practicing, they improve. They can be really good players. But what's also incredible to see is the the ones who come on court, and initially you just think what am I going to do with you? Because uh, you are really struggling to hit maybe one ball in 20 at all. Um, but some of these kids just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And, you know, and somehow they leave school at 18 and they're brilliant. They're really, really good players. And I. it's it's incredible to me that, you know, some of those will end up being far better players than the ones who initially you thought were the most talented. So I'm a I'm a big proponent of, of the growth mindset and, and that, you know, you practice and you will get better and it isn't always about how naturally gifted you were at the beginning.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, Zach, you'll have things to say from the, the coaching and psychology point of view, but uh, I hope you know, Sam McLaughlin wouldn't mind me putting him, his name out there in in a similar category to that. When he started at 14, um, he, you know, he definitely wasn't in the top few pairs in his year, but he was part of a, a whole group of, uh, of players who were good friends as well. They knew each other well uh, and they would spend hours on the courts. And uh, you know, he was in the school second pair when he left. He's carried on playing. He's a good fives player. Uh, but at 14, was he in the top? Four pairs in the year group. I think he would have been about, you know, fifth pair in the year at that
0: stage. He certainly wasn't one of our top top players. If we look at how t- naturally talented players will probably skip those foundational steps when they develop skills, so they those skills then probably aren't as robust under pressure, or they don't necessarily understand how they do what they do. So if there's ever, um, you know, a competitive scenario, then those skills are more likely to break down or uh, be stunted in their development. So they peak far earlier. So the proper development of a foundation, and you'll know this through your own experience, through coaching, is that you need to know those basics. And then only then can you create variations and um, develop on those basics. Um, because at the end of the day, those basics are what are gonna hold you up in a, in a game. Um, so making sure that young players develop those is, is essential. And you will see eventually those talented players will converge with the not so talented players when time is the the same amount of time is spent on the on the task. Talking about time spent on the task, um, was there any other sports that you maybe practiced in your living room, or as much did you spend as much time on other sports as you did on fives? Or
3: yeah, so I did. Yeah, I mean netball. Um, as soon as, uh, I think I was about 12, that was never gonna be the sport for me. <laughs> it's a high issue. So I was, I was small and speedy, and that was great when I started school at 11. Uh, but once people get to be a whole foot taller than you, um, you're starting to struggle <laughs> in, in a sport like netball. But hockey was, yeah. So I, I played for our school hockey team, age 13, 14. Um, basically, I was, I was aggressive and, and not scared to hit the ball really hard. But I never really loved it. Um, I didn't put the time into the practice. I just never. And so that kind of tailed off. But Fives was something that I really enjoyed doing. So I wanted to come back. I wanted to practice. I wanted to play. And that was what made the difference, I think, for me.
2: I mean, there might well be a family link in there in that um, Chris was the first to start at Olav's, being the oldest. um, And came back and said you're going to have to try this sport um so we'd already been sort of lined up to try it but i think all of us independently decided that um yeah that that was the one we preferred um in terms of other sports yeah i mean i was an a-team cricketer for um for two three years at, at, uh from 11 12 13 and uh, just a metronomic bowler i would put the ball in the same place six times and when you're 11 or 12 um, people will try and hit it, and occasionally they'll miss it. At which point, you know, I picked up wickets. I picked up plenty of wickets until I was about fourteen, and everyone else had had grown a foot. Um, so the bowlers, the, the, or the rest of the bowlers, were now ten miles an hour quicker than me, and my pace was exactly the pace at that age that everyone really enjoyed smashing everywhere. <laughs> um, so at that point, I became a specialist fielder and uh, and wasn't picked for um, for A teams anymore. Um, and it's still the case now, if I go out and bowl in nets, it's the under-15s, they love my pace. That is the pace that they want to face in nets and they can ping it everywhere. If I go out and bowl at the, the senior players, the sixth formers, they can't handle it. It's a pace that they really hate, it's in between. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I can time that as exactly when I stopped being a, uh, an A's cricketer.
1: How bizarre <laughs> that you can pinpoint that moment. But I'm guessing that that bowling skill may have helped towards your fives playing a little bit. And what else did you kind of do to improve your fives game once you decided that that's what you were going to focus
2: on? Well, I mean, it, it, was, it was Howard's coaching sessions, wasn't it really? Um, and he sort of ran the, the fives club at the school in game sessions and after school sessions as a very, very inclusive um, thing. So, so our numbers were huge. At the courts, I mean, just the four courts. that's no labs at the time. I remember you had to get down there pronto from lessons at break time, let alone lunch, if there was still going to be court space. And uh, and you never tried to get on court one or court two because the sixth form would kick you off the minute they got there. Um. So, but uh, three or four, you had some chance of holding on to if you were if you were first down there and you had a group of players. Um. And yes, the the way Howard coached is that everyone was worth his his time and effort, and he built, you know, effectively the base of the Olavian pyramid was a, a very, very wide one. Um, but yeah, I think we, we both probably found that sort of technically in terms of being used to balls and moving around, and both of us actually, that's been gymnasts. So we had the balance proprioception as well as coordination, and probably that bit of explosive strength and speed that meant, you know, when I was 11, You hit a ball to the back left of court, I couldn't get it back. I could stand there and set myself up. I couldn't hit it back to the front wall because I didn't have the timing, coordination, strength to get it back from there. But put the ball on the front court, no one could beat me because I could get to everything. I could get everything back. Um, So those um, games of 20 players all on the front court, uh, playing in rotation until there's only one left in, I'd, I'd happily win those at age 11, so that's when I sort of decided it was my 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 sport, I, I suppose. But um, so Howard ran things that way, but also had a very technical side to his coaching. Um, he was speaking a lot to John Reynolds at the time when John had just won all 10 of his canards. and John always thinks a lot about the sport and a lot about the angles the shot choices and about technique and howard was always speaking to him about those things yeah so a lot of his ideas came through howard and howard was then putting them into practice in his own game but also in training sessions and we were always looking at technique and what's your weight doing where's your swing starting and making things repeatable but also looking at our own technique or looking at other people's techniques and where they were going wrong to see what we could do better so if You know, if there's it, and I think both of us in terms of our game would think we're fairly technical players or technically accurate with repeatable techniques, that comes directly from Howard.
3: What
1: about you, Charlotte? What do you think?
3: Um, So I started playing slightly differently. So obviously St. Olav's um, was an all boys school at at the time when I wanted to start playing. I was the youngest, so I always wanted to do everything that my brothers were doing, um, preferably better. Um, so there was absolutely no chance of me not trying to play the game so I started age 10 and it had to be at these evening clubs because um I was at a different school they didn't have any courts and again uh, howard ran those clubs um initially and as Seb says I mean very um very technical so there was always that aspect to it but um I mean it, it was competition based as well he would he would he would give you points so during drills he would give you points for you know zero points if you hit it like this, one point if you hit it like this, two points if you hit it like this. I'm competitive. I want to win. I want to get the most points out of everybody who's doing this drill. So that focus on I want to win <laughs> um, really made you made you try and hit those shots really, really well. And it was just, he just made it all fun. It was always really fun and really inclusive. Even at this evening club, which was mostly adults and then you know little 10-year-old me, Again, you know, not massively strong, um, but very, very competitive, very, very aggressive, even at that age, but just making it somewhere that I wanted to be and wanted to do well.
1: Oh, I can imagine. I kind of want to see a photo,
3: (laughs) any photos?
2: (laughs) So often in my life, I've been delighted that most of my youth was lived Um, (laughs) pre-digital. Um, yeah, I think the only photos of me around five courts, I think, uh, that are from that sort of time are after the under 16 and open national championships and even those because they're taken from you know, six, seven meters away. Uh, I mean, Jokes about size aside, <laughs> really small in them and. Um, yeah uh so yeah even the photos of those aren't aren't that great
0: i uh i just wanted to jump in with some uh sports psychology and the nature versus nurture kind of things there's some buzzwords just going off in my head about the experiences you guys had talking about charlotte being a choice and you choosing to to pursue it because it wasn't just available to you at school you know you had to go to evening clubs now that's straight away you know that being your choice you know that's a that's a big tick in my mind like that's that's really positive, you know, and that just is indicative of the amount of fun that you would probably have is because you, you want to be there. And the learning experience that you can have obviously facilitated by a, a coach that knows what he's what he's doing um, in, in Howard and, and obviously the positive influences uh, of, you know, becoming a technical player like a like a John Reynolds, the fact that your practice is deliberate um deliberately trying to be better than your siblings
2: on which then you succeeded on most levels so <laughs> got music um you've just listed the national titles
0: yeah. <laughs> and looking at how how it rewarded process so awarding points it's a motivated process rather than just outcomes so when you mentioned you know you wanted to win you wanted to win at each little incremental incremental difference and then of course it being fun uh i mean yeah it has to be otherwise what is the point of trying to win all these incremental processes that just wouldn't be, that doesn't sound like fun unless you love what you're doing.
2: But uh, on various bits of psychology that uh, we've been looking at also for um, looking after children in, in schools, uh, one of the things this uh, psychologist pointed out I found was fascinating in, uh, in sport is that the advantage that those older children in a year group have Um, that shows statistically in uh, academic results, as well as in sports teams, um, you can track it in sports teams all the way up through the levels until you get to the elite level, at which point she said it's reversed. And those who uh, who are older, who have never had to work quite as hard, if you like, to hold those places, who maybe didn't have that technical grounding, Um, because they had been in the top team and hadn't needed it to push themselves on actually then fall behind those who have always had to work harder at it, maybe because they were younger.
1: It is really interesting. And I don't know if you've read the book Outliers, but it talks about how if you look at all the birth months of ice hockey players in Canada, so loads of them in the elite level are now born in January, and then there's quite a lot in February, quite a lot in March, and it slowly decreases as you go through the months but it's because like their school year starts in January, but because at that age of like four or five, they're that much bigger than the people who are born in August or in December, that they're just better because they're a little bit bigger and they can bosh people around, but they're the people who get the attention. And so that's why as you kind of go through, you find there's this you know, accumulation of these January, February, March born people in the elite level of ice hockey. But that comes a little bit with nurture i think because they always had the opportunity to keep getting better whereas what you're saying is that if you know if everyone's still given all the opportunity then it doesn't matter where you start as long as you're not put in a little box that you're no good at an early age because of your size in the case of ice hockey
0: it, it is a very interesting concept the way you're talking about there is called biobanding. new zealand rugby is a great example because they actually categorize their youth teams by weight and, and size. Um, so they actually create a biological band that rather than a you know a year group. So I would have had the worst time playing rugby as a kid because I, I was a very big kid um, but my skill level was was low compared to quite a lot of my peers. So I would have been lumped with the other lumps and it would have been would have been tough. Meanwhile I excelled at that age and made, teams that I probably shouldn't have made at that younger age because I was I mean I was 13 and six foot so it was just it was just how it was going to be. be but then because I was put into a group with people that were smaller than me I didn't need to develop robust skills so I only started developing skills that I would say made me a good rugby player after I finished school and um, so my learning curve was very different to those that had to adapt to having to have uh people like me pile onto them they had to develop fast feet i never had to develop that so it's it's interesting how and um, that biobanding concept can be applied because that uh, that nature kind of side has such an impact on that nurture how you experience your environment is going to be different depending on your biological composition on your on your physicality so i mean i'm I'm six foot two, hundred 100 kilograms, not necessarily a natural fives player, but we all shared a very understanding nod when smashing the ball around the court quite aggressively was mentioned. So there's, you know, maybe there's a difference in that physical predisposition, but then there's a, a it doesn't necessarily change that enjoyment of that part of the game, that physical element of the game. But in maybe in contact sports, that's slightly different in terms of what you're going to experience.
1: I mean, what was what's really nice is that you say that you enjoyed it so much, Charlotte. Did you do you feel that that passion and that fun is still with you now when you play, even at the high level that you do?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I still love winning. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, but it is. Uh, I think. I don't know if it's unique to fives, but there is, there is something about the, the people that you play with that in the main, it is just a really enjoyable experience to be on court with, with them. Um, so, I mean, you and I Emma, have played quite a few national finals against each other. A few. <laughs> <laughs> they are always extremely competitive, but they're always also really nice games to play in. So, and but that is that is something that can only happen um, if all four players on a court are in the same kind of mindset, have the same kind of attitude, and that's been my experience. Whether it's like that level or just you know playing with some eleven-year-olds, coaching at school, all the way through, I just I, I really enjoy playing. I enjoy the being with the people that I play against. It's um, I still. I still really enjoy it, otherwise I wouldn't play. Oh, that's good. Here, here, I also enjoy very much playing against you in the final,
1: even if I come out on the wrong side of it.
2: It's a really important point. And I do, there's one that always sticks with me when I was starting to play sort of adult fives, if you like. We, we had um, an OLAV's team in the second division when I was in the sixth form. So we were already playing adult fives, but also at the time, Robin Rumsam, there we go, another Chumley. Uh, yeah, we are just team. dropping
1: them in um, left right sometimes.
2: Uh, Robin was organising what was called Funky Fipes, which was his own thing. It was one day a month. Uh, If you wanted to play in it, you'd let him know at least a week ahead. And what Robin did was just out of this huge pool of players, I think he used to have seven, eight courts regularly at Eton for it, is that he would then set up the the best match that he could for you. Uh, So you were then put into that match and that's your four and you play a best of five and I think it was an evening thing, and then everyone would um, would go for a would go for a beer afterwards in the pub. Um, but uh, that sort of premise of you sign up for it, you turn up just because you enjoy it, but you would always be put in a game, and you knew you were always going to be put in a game that was that was going to be a good close match. of after leaving school, so already been playing in adult competitions and won the school's nationals. But I then spent a few years playing with lots of different people. And whether that's in tournaments or in league matches or the individual tournament that was organised, I think that was really crucial because I'd played at school with James too. He dominated the court. I didn't really need to do a great deal apart from keep getting the ball back, make sure the ball's in a rally, because James will kill it so I didn't do much in the way of attacking when I was because I didn't need to when I was at school I was just a get everything back sort of player it was only after I left school and started playing with different people that uh, I started playing more of the attacking role playing more attacking shots and realizing that I could play some fairly useful attacking shots is when I started playing the the dipper the spin shot that um, I stole from Robin Mason but uh, yeah I, I think that having to play with different people and therefore play different roles within a pair was really important to to the player that I became
1: that's really interesting because I I think that I don't like being the dominant player like I think I like to know that I have someone that's you know better than me playing with me (laughs) it makes me feel easier but maybe I have to play with the mix of people to
2: yeah, being able to transfer into that role and, and therefore learning to control a court and that, you know, it, when you first do it, certainly when I was first doing that, having just left school, it meant it was fairly useful for me not to be on court with, with a player who was stronger than me. And yeah, I, it, it, in terms of developing different parts of your game. I think it'd be useful for, for anyone. So, yes.
0: When you're, when you're at the top of your game, what do you look for in a partner? Are you looking for someone that complements your playing style? As in, they can make up for what you can't do and you can make up for what they can't do. Or are you looking for someone that you, you learn from? I mean, I guess they're not mutually exclusive comments, but my feeling is, is that talking about having a, a wide range of partners, if you're with someone that can do something that you can't do, and you stay with them throughout your playing career, you might never need to develop that skill.
3: I think that can be true, but actually what I have found is that when I play with someone who can do something that I currently can't, that brings, that brings my attention to uh, a deficiency in my game. And then I'm like, oh, actually, no, I, I, need, to, I, I need to start practicing that. I, I hadn't even necessarily thought about it before. The best thing for me is, is not just having someone who complements the playing style, it, it is about the personality dynamic between you more than anything else, for, is what I've found. You know, there are, there are some partnerings that just, and I'm never quite sure why, they just don't work. So I think Seb and our older brother Chris is a, a really bizarre example. You see Peter and Tom Dunbar, they play fantastically well together. We get lots of kind of sibling um, partnerships that work well. Um, but Seb and Chris just never really did work well as a pair so it is it is finding the personality balance that gets the best out of both players as well
2: yeah and and yes that's I agree with that very much and I still don't know why Chris and I we played together a few times not much after leaving school actually these, these were school, school boy matches in which we played and and, and um, I mean spectacularly and catastrophically Um, badly we were on the borderline of losing to pairs that probably each of us might have beaten one against two (laughs) so two people being less than the sum of a one um, uh, on on one or two occasions but no I suppose across the years I've played with a lot of different people obviously now more with Tom than with anyone else I think but James as well Um, they both understand the game so tactical ideas and decisions are mostly theirs uh, much better for me on court if I don't have to think about anything. But they 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 do the thinking, essentially. They're, they're both very good at that. But a few years ago, I enjoyed looking at the statistics for games when someone had gone through and done them, um, because you tended to find that one player on a pair was playing more attacking shots, making more winners, but making more mistakes. And the other player on the pair was steadier. So uh, James Toope and Matt Wiseman, for example, Matt, we knew was really destructive. He would play shots that you couldn't get back, but he would also make more of the unforced errors. Whereas James would be much steadier in that partnership. I think Tom Dunbar is a bit of an outlier because he doesn't make mistakes and he plays winners. Um, so in that case, if you can't beat him, play with him. him. But yeah, primarily it's gotta be someone actually you can communicate well with. And you learn that through, through playing with someone for a few years. You learn which shots you're taking and which you're not. And certainly in the first years of a partnership, you have to focus on that communication. But it's not only about where you are on court and who's taking what shots. It's actually getting on as a pair. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing in coaching as well, just you know dealing with tiffs and people who now don't want to play with each other. And, and you know that sort of technically that's the that's the best pair you've got, but um, but they yeah, don't but... see it.
0: They don't like it at the moment you know how how do we choose our partners how do we i mean how do you get out of a partnership i think i think that one's always fascinated me especially if you're doing well i'm i'm sure that people have had conflicts that they haven't haven't really raised with their partners because they think i'm just going to have to go over this because i either get over it or i get out of this partnership and we're winning so i'm not going to get out of it
2: yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in a winning partnership that I wanted to get out of. I think when you get down to it, people will do a lot to win yeah? and they will they will get over not getting on with someone if they're winning, I think.
1: Charlotte, would it be fair to say that you maybe had to make that decision at some point? Because you and and Marianne were a successful pair. I mean, you didn't necessarily, hadn't won, but you have been in multiple finals and you'd obviously built up a... of rapport playing as a partnership but at some point you did choose to to change your partnership
3: yeah and I it's really tough because you know you're you're friends (laughs) you know you you play this much together and and in a sport like fives where you know we you know we do socialize together as well we get on really well with friends and then it's it's a really tough thing to to say or to have to kind of come up with actually this we're not going to do this anymore um we were doing well, but we weren't winning. Uh, you know, we were, we were comfortably getting to the final and also comfortably losing that final most times. So um, I knew that if I wanted to win, uh, it probably wasn't gonna be in that partnership. And I knew that, you know, Karen was there. Karen had started at university, so started quite late, but improved enormously, very, very quickly. She was she was already a top player only a, a few years into playing and didn't have a regular top level partner. It was, you know, it was about as clear cut if you're looking at it objectively about as clear cut a decision as you could get. And in hindsight, you know, I probably, I could have made that decision to ask Karen at least a year, possibly two years earlier. We might not have won our first ladies title in the, our first year together if I'd done that. But uh, yeah, I, I left it longer, uh, I think, than I maybe should have done. It's not fun. <laughs> it's an actual breakup. It's like yeah. a relationship yeah. with I, this person. <laughs> I felt, awful mm. i found it really really tough and i still feel i still feel bad about it it's not it's not a nice kind of decision to have to make
0: no i i, I can imagine not it's not personal and it's just amazing how something that's not personal can hurt like it really really is so i can you know just even hearing about this or seeing how you speak about it for the first time it can can tell that you know even a, a necessary decision for you to reach your potential within the sport um, as objective as that is is a tough one to make so
1: have you found that you've had to ch- had a change in mentality or
3: maybe it's a change in pressure from getting to the top to now being at the top I don't think I am at the top um, there are still plenty of people out there um, better than me and so I want to get better so that I can be be the best you know, not necessarily just better than other people, but I want, to, I want to be a better player. There are still plenty of things for me to work on. And I think, I mean, partly I also play in, in like the open tournaments, not just ladies tournaments. Um, and so there are, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of scope for me to keep going up in that respect, um, which uh, is probably not quite the same for Sam. You want to be the best that you can be. Yeah,
2: I, yeah. Uh, it, it might not be the same for me. I mean, that's a very kind way of saying I'm about to turn 40, um, mm-hmm. so cheers, Charlie. <laughs> um, if you'd asked me so 15 years ago, I'd have said, I think probably the, your peak at fives is maybe when you're about 30 years old. And that was based on the champions that had been around to that point. Again, I'll come to John Reynolds, Brian Matthews. The, uh, John was, I think, 19 when he won his first kin um, a year or so after he left school and so he had won his 11 titles by the time he was 30, uh, and uh, if I looked at people around at that time, they tended to be there or thereabouts. Um, uh, James Toop and Matt Wiseman um, won their first Kinnaird, or were they in their first final at least, in 99, and maybe won the first one in 2000, so uh, at 18, 19, thought sort of 30 was the peak age, I have said then, but... Um, I, I was 30 when I won my first one and 40 now, so that's not um, it's maybe not quite right. There's something else about fives where you know, uh, a bit of experience counts a, a lot for, for um, that sheer athleticism. Uh, I, I think I'm slower around a court now. I'm fairly sure I'm slower around a court now than I was 10 years ago. And at the start of every season, I chase a couple and think I'd have got that. And, I, and now I'm not getting it, but yeah, I think my decision making is slower. I think my movement around a court is slower, but I'm, I'm sort of learning then to um, to compensate for that by by thinking um, and by, by planning and having a, having a plan, having a tactic. in terms of whether it's more difficult to keep winning than it is to start winning, I'll, I'll, well I suppose I'll never know. Robin Mason said to me before I'd won any canads, I think when I was sort of early 20s and just breaking through, he said it's it's always more difficult to win your first title uh, than it is to win any after that. Um, I mean, it it might just have been psyching me out because uh, I was a challenger and he was a holder at that point and had won it a few times. I suppose I'll never know um, what was behind him saying it, but um, that there could be, I don't know, there could be truth in it.
3: I think attitude when when people go on court is is worth a lot there are definitely pairs that uh i've gone on court against where you know their their attitude they know that they're expected to lose that's and but actually they're a pretty good pair but that that's worth three or four points to me in a game um but i don't think that happens so much as you get to sort of semifinals and finals of, of major tournaments like these are pairs that you're playing against who know they can beat you <laughs> on their day and, <laughs> and are coming into it with the attitude that they're going to do absolutely everything they can to beat you. So you do have to, um, you have to keep improving yourself because everybody else is improving around you. If you want to keep winning, you have to keep improving um, and I don't know about Seb, but I, I definitely have targets in terms of like ladies championships. There are still, you know, there are people who've won it more times than me. And that's a target that I would use to motivate myself to keep improving and keep winning.
1: I, something that I found and I wasn't expecting to feel it was the first time I got to the ladies final, um, you know, it was great. We were third seeds, obviously we'd gone into the tournament, but the following year, and I know it's not the, quite the same as winning and retaining the title, but even I felt a different pressure of trying to retain my spot in the final. And suddenly that semi-final suddenly became a much more stressful match than maybe even the final was.
3: It is, it is stressful and you do get that pressure. Um, and sometimes that can be enough to put you off your game.
2: I n- know because I can remember from warm-ups and from matches when I was starting to challenge, which I, I had been from uh, leaving school. I, I was already in in good places in tournaments and, and doing reasonably well. And I felt I was competing against those top players, but I was always, and again, to use one of um, Zach's catchphrases on court, I was always really process focused in those matches. I was concentrating on my shots. And that shot at the moment, Right, which shot am I going to play from here, how well, how accurately can I hit that, and I was doing that from the warm up, and I think it's been the same for me, it definitely was in my first Canad final. All I was thinking about for the first 20 minutes of that was I'm going to do the basic things as well as I can, I'm not going to concentrate too much on the rest of the game, I've got to be able to get cuts back, I've got to be hitting shots to the right height, and I, I gave myself just a few really simple things to do and I wasn't going to try anything extra extravagant
0: yeah it's 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 interesting to hear how many um kind of just really well put together like coaching cues both mental and physical cues that you two seem to be throwing out like it's interesting that the language that you're using is very much a a well well well-rounded athlete well-rounded top level athlete kind of set of of terminology that you're throwing out and it's just it's just great to hear in fives um you know coming from my perspective from the outside in looking at the world of sport in general and how fives fits into that but the the language used the skills the um development of you know your character your um your management in emotional management etc of a game you know that's all it's all the same and it transfers across and and that's you know, it's something that people don't often see. And I just thought, I just want to point out that I, I just love hearing that. And I'm just hearing things that just are so relatable to, to the wider world of sport.
2: Yeah, I was going to point out that my emotional management of my game hasn't always been that good. I remember very well uh, Peter White at one point, And we'd well left school by now. Um, you might know Pete, who was in my year at school. We had an epic year group at Snow Labs. But, um, I, yeah, well into my 20s on court. And I... Um, I used to get very annoyed with myself if I wasn't playing as well as I knew I could or thought I should be Uh, and I'd I'd go full implosion and uh, Peter has in one match physically picked me up, walked me round the corner onto the next court and said if you carry on like this we'll lose the game, if you just calm yourself down we won't Um, and it was what I needed, I just uh, yeah that's fair enough stopped worrying about well, what a, you know this this implosion i just had and 30 seconds i needed just to say you know pull yourself together man
3: i hate to be competitive again but um <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't i'm pretty sure that my my anger management was even worse <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, I was I was absolutely awful as a um, you know uh, coming up. And uh, I'm, before anybody listening uh, says anything, yes, I know it's still a work in progress. But <laughs> my natural tendency is to get really down on myself and angry. Um, so if I hit a shot down, or even it, it didn't even matter if you know my opponents played a really good shot and I lost a rally, just losing a rally. Um, for anything that was my fault would just completely yeah I would I would well not so much implode as explode the temper would would come out quite spectacularly I've been known to you know throw things and, and oh, awful awful but um, so learning to deal with that has probably been the biggest factor in me having any success at all because it wouldn't matter how good technically I was if I couldn't control myself losing a rally there's no way that you're going to win a tournament you're going to lose rallies you you know that's that's the way that sport is and one of the first things I think that that Howard said was right okay every game you're allowed to make 10 mistakes you're only allowed to get angry with yourself until it's more than 10 (laughs) um and you know that helped just because it was like, right, okay, this isn't the end of the world, just reset, start again. And that was the beginning of a process of, of getting a handle um, on my emotions. It Wasn't actually really until I uh, studied at music college that i really understood more about my own reactions because I started studying psychology of performance uh, while I was there, I never got nervous. Um, uh, you know, in a, in a music performance until I started doing it at music college. And so I studied the psychology and like all of the reactions that I was having, I was like, oh, but this also happens when I'm playing sport, when I'm playing fives. And so all of those techniques that I was learning to control my performance anxiety in music, I could start to use them on a the five score as well. I mean, breathing was a massive thing. Um, as a brass player, if you can't control your breathing very well, you're not gonna play well. So that was massive. And actually just controlling your breathing means you're controlling your body, you're controlling, it automatically regulates emotion for you. So that was an absolute game changer for me.
2: Yeah, and it is, as you say, it's something you've absolutely got to work on and learn to manage. Um, And certainly, I don't know whether it naturally gets easier as you get older, but I find it much easier managing myself on court. Now, if you do watch me and Tom in any matches, actually, you, one of us makes a particularly poor unforced error. We'll have a laugh about it. We will laugh with and at each other for that. And we're, you know, we'll compete in tournaments for who's lost uh, the most points or rather the fewest. Um, but we'll have a laugh at each other. And that is an interesting one because I think it puts oppositions under even more pressure. These guys have just made a mistake and they're laughing about it. They are that confident they're gonna they're mm. gonna win against us um so i you know i've, I've sort of spotted that as, and it is a it's a management technique uh for ourselves but uh but also you know i've, I've often wondered whether it does make uh, a difference to
0: oppositions. uh yeah i i really like that because in terms of your from your side it's it's a it's diffusion it's it takes away the pressure of that situation or rather the pressure of that outcome uh, you've lost a point, you know, it was bad. You don't need to talk about how bad it was. So the best thing to do is to laugh about it because that's that's how you can move on. You're not going to, you know, um, we call it a post-mortem for a reason. It's, it's, it's morbid to pick apart the mistake that you've made. You're not going to benefit yourself doing it on court. So I, I, I like that, have a laugh. And if it manages to throw off your opponent because they think, wow, they're, they're pretty relaxed about that mistake, then that's an added bonus. Moving from there, um, what have you learned from each other's games? Uh, you know, we're talking about emotional management, anger management, but uh, <laughs> what else um, have you kind of maybe learned from each other? Um, well, I, I think that one interesting one playing in the mixed
2: um, that I've noted a few times. I mean, we've been in in matches a few times when we've been um, we've been behind in in the first set, maybe even lost the first set, and I've spotted a a, you know one or two things we can maybe do differently as a pair that that would turn it round um the one i'm remembering in particular and and this is partly down to the uh the cut return rule that you can score as many points as you like with or we can score lots of points with charlie serving we do whereas if i'm serving score one okay we're done um so charlie's return a cut then became sort of that bit more important and um being uh and think the opposition in one were targeting quite wide and on your left hand um a line that was probably going to miss the buttress entirely and we just had a chat between games of uh, that's that's what i've spotted that's what's happening and uh and this is this is how this is one way let's try this that we could deal with it and sure enough the next time charlie went up to serve started the next game we won five six seven points in a hand and uh, I've done that plenty of times on court when I'm playing with people I'm coaching. You can see it, you can lay out the situation, but they don't necessarily do it. Um, so, so that was one sort of big difference is, and I don't know whether I'd have the, the discipline to do that consistently for that many points, uh, is actually it's been, it's been really good to play with someone who that, that thought, that gets processed, and now technically I can turn that into a difference on court and mm-hmm. simply change what I'm doing in that situation.
3: He never normally says nice things like that to me. Oh, <laughs> are you blushing? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. When we first started uh, like playing in the mix together, I, I found it incredibly difficult and incredibly frustrating actually, um, because I, you know, Seb would hit um, so many shots and uh, dominate rallies, dominate play. And then, you know, all of a sudden a shot comes to me and I miss it. I've realized sort of that, I was getting lazy. I was just, you know, I was standing in one position and I was saying, well, he's probably gonna get that. So I'm just stand here, let him carry on, you know. Um, and so I had to learn to actually know, you, you need to play this game as if you're gonna be hitting every shot. Um, you need to keep putting that effort in, keep moving to the position where you know you should be in case it comes to you. And okay, a lot of the time it won't. But then when it does, you're much less likely to miss it and get frustrated and then miss the next one. So a lot of like mental discipline, staying focused in a rally all the time because you have to be ready to play that shot when it comes.
0: Yeah, and um, something we covered in, I think, the podcast on, on mental performance in, in fives is the importance of staying present and staying focused. Um, there are natural breaks in play. The game can slow down. And it can slow down when you are in a position where you might not be getting the ball. So you can spend a prolonged uh, period of time, not actually hitting the ball, but you'll lose so many points. Like as you've pointed out, if you aren't ready, if you aren't in the right position for that. And obviously as, as a player, you won't get as many opportunities to improve if you don't make sure you're in the right position to play.
3: Another thing um, really is, is it's quite, uh, spectacular! How much Seb can control where the opponent is. He does it for fun, like um, so. Especially in the mixed, um, he will he will often he will, he will pick, <laughs> pick on the on, on the stronger player, and he will you know he will drop shot to front right where they you know and then and then smash them out the back of the court. He can he can have um, people literally running around while he just essentially stands almost in one place. And so it's, it is a lesson in thinking, not just um, about what is the best shot, but what is uh, the best shot for where your opponents are so that you can then move them around.
1: So now that, now that you've been nice to each other, we're gonna put a little bit of a competitive spirit in and do the first ever little quiz on the Pepper podcast so we have a few questions which uh, you guys are going to answer just five because obviously fives uh, to see who knows more about your sort of partnership so the first few questions are quotes from certain tournaments and i've banked out the names of uh, who has you know who is each you have to guess who this description is of and you guys have to hold up your cards which say either Seb or Charlotte are on it. So the first one is from a mixed national finals. It's a little clue, so it could be either of you. This is the quote. The final was a match of the dinosaur versus the ferret with the dinosaur slamming the ball left, right and centre and the ferret running around court in double quick time. Which of you is being described in this as the ferret? Oh, you've both gone for Seb, very good, one each. Now, bonus question. Who do you think was being described as the dinosaur?
2: I think that might have been Pete Cohen. Very good,
1: two points to Seb. <laughs> it was Pete Cohen. I've, I've had to search, you know, through a lot of <laughs> lives to find this information.
2: That's good, I, I, I didn't remember that right up at all. That's uh, another great shot I, I'd, I'd nearly got back. Uh, was against Pete Cohen up at the Northerns when I'd set him up for a left-hand volley. I was playing against him. He'd got this left-hand volley. I was out of position at that court, knew exactly where it was going. It was going off the back right at pace. So I set off and um, probably before the ball did. I still think I was eight metres off the back of the court when I hit it. Sadly, didn't get it back, but I was there. Really irritated I didn't get that one. It was an Aww. epic shot from Pete. He was a powerful man.
1: The dinosaur and the ferret. You could write a book about it. okay so next question so it's another quote from another mixed final so some dazzling play by blank who found the back bricks during several rallies when the score had been stuck at eight nine helped to burst the bubble and together the coolies ran away with the title who is the blank
2: i'm gonna go that way
1: oh charlotte you should have had more faith with you was it me it was you do you and you have any i guess as to when that might have been um, I'll give you a clue. Seb wasn't actually on court with you. That was a-
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> It was <That's> a 2002 <laughs> against James and Helen Toop.
2: James that and Helen. Finally. I mean, I, 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 I could be fairly confident that wasn't me because, yeah, why would you aim at the back bricks? <laughs> uh, I've been told off for being nice, so I'll get some digs in now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Question three. Karen and Tony were never quite able to produce the run of three or four points in a a hand, mainly thanks to some excellent cutting from blank that would have turned being competitive into being a real winning threat. Who do you think the blank was? Yeah, it was you, Charlotte, you both got it, woo! (laughs) Deb is slightly ahead at the moment. Next questions are not quotes, they're actually questions and the first one is is slightly biased towards charlotta so we'll we'll see if she gets this one right yeah. both obviously partnered together for the mixed for quite a few few tournaments but how many partners and you'll have to put your fingers up how many partners has charlotta had in the mix
3: oh that's quite tricky
1: and bear in mind i've gone based off the archive so if this is wrong it's not my fault <laughs> i'm gonna
3: go with uh.
1: Three. You've both gone with three. So I found four.
3: I think. Oh, uh, was it? Four? Who was the fourth? So I know I played one year, at least one year with um with my other brother Ollie, and actually really upset that I didn't win it with him. Um, but who was who was the fourth?
1: I didn't actually find Ollie, so it might be five.
3: <laughs> it might be five.
1: Did you play one with Dave a Mixed.
3: Might have done. So I
1: have Jonathan Dean in two thousand.
2: Oh wow.
1: And
3: Sanjaya ran. Played Ranj. with Ranj. 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 Sanj, Sanj ran a singer. Played with Sanj one year. Oh, brilliant! I had completely forgotten about that. Sorry, Sanj. But <laughs> I think it must be five then, because I definitely played with Ollie. Yeah. Uh, we got really close. I think we we lost in the semi-final to James and Helen Toop. Um, yeah. Sudden death in the third, and um, we'd already beaten the pair that they played in the final earlier in the tournament. And um, that that semi was definitely. Uh, the deciding the deciding match of that tournament we were really I was really upset not to win that with Ollie I'd have won it with three different people but
1: But either way neither of you got any points there so so there was one year where both of you won a tournament two different tournaments or one part of a tournament with someone or with a partner of the same surname could be the same person could be different person what was that surname it was 1999
2: Oh! Did you win a nationals with Helen too?
3: No, I think it's Ganguly. Could it be? Did I
2: play with Robin. I don't don't know if I played in a, any tournament with Robin.
3: Reese, could it be Reese? Ninety nine. I wouldn't have been. No, that's the one of them was a plate. I'm gonna put it out there. <laughs> unless I played with, uh, unless it was I didn't play with a. I played with a guy.
2: Nineteen ninety nine. I was my last year at school, so yeah, and
3: still I would have been. 13? I don't know. So you've actually
1: said the name. It was Toop Is it, it was oh, Toop. No, too- it was Toop. It was Toop. So uh, Seb, you obviously won the schools open with James and Charlotta. You won the ladies plate A with Helen Toop. I
2: really. So I asked the question. Uh, did you win one with Helen Toop? And you. Uh, I'm blaming Charlie for not remembering that she won. <laughs> one with my first guess.
3: I don't. I don't remember. I can not remember that
1: at all. In the write up, it says the header, he, he, I can't say this word, hereditary uh, genes, you know, of, of the younger sisters of uh, Seb and James. I think Seb won by one point, I'm afraid,
3: Charlotte. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I can, I can control my, my emotions. It's fine. It'd be very funny if you just suddenly had a meltdown on the
1: <laughs> cast <laughs> <and> just a <laughs> joke. no, this is a rigged. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. emotional control in fives not transferring into everyday life
2: <laughs> oh we, we we didn't go on to s- measuring speeds of cups. oh yeah that's true we mentioned that in a previous cast so maybe we
1: because i, <laughs> um, I want to see if yeah. i can beat you yeah, so, you so might so be so the only way i can beat you <laughs> um,
2: i think you might be able to um because we yeah we have had adam shantry's our cricket professional up here at at shrewsbury and he's he loves his gadgets too so he's got a handheld radar um that he uses for his bowlers but it it basically tracks a ball and tells you its speed and we had it last handed out when george Panayi was uh at school in the upper sixth which um was four years ago And we clocked george at just under 70 miles an hour but i i came in mid 50s on that um so yeah sort of 55 56 miles an hour is my standard cut um if i put effort in it didn't go that much quicker it was just less (laughs) accurate and easier to get back but again Mm -hmm. i I see it a lot like bowling if you've got the pace Mm -hmm. by all means use it and try and beat them for speed i haven't never did so i will try and use spin variation and placement to make it more difficult to get get my cut back um but yeah so i'm I'm not the i'm not the quickest cutter but yeah i think you'd be able to beat 55
1: and i'd like to try i'd also like to see harry asquiths yeah and alex abrams i'd like to throw his in the mix i'll get pete cohen back
3: out of retirement (laughs) because he he could really wallop the ball
2: (laughs) hit it hard i'd only give him two cuts before his shoulder goes you have to make sure you've got it set up to measure from the start I'll, I'll let you know if we if we do it again maybe we can do a weekly
1: stat you know every time it gets beaten we'll just be like
2: this ties into the, the, one thing, the one thing that hasn't been done in fives that really needs to happen which is fives top trump's cuts <laughs> so you've got all the categories on there wingspan reflexes the things you've mentioned sort of uh, psychology you know how stable are they are they easy to wind up and undermine speed of cut agility sorry that's I'm just coming up with categories that I would still do reasonably in <laughs> I'm losing on pace of cut and wingspan so I'm going to have to throw agility in there <laughs> the
1: ability to hit the whole volley
2: yes the flying monkey volley um,
1: yeah Ricky's going to do pretty good at that one Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. it's almost designed for him remember <laughs> hitting one flying volley, Ed Taylor standing on court beside me saying, Well, that's not very impressive. I wouldn't have needed to jump to hit it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ed. But yeah. Left hand, right hand. My left hand is not.
2: Ambidexterity. Oh, yeah,
3: ambidexterity. You
2: oh, need yeah. Just, does anyone beat Matt Wiseman on ambidexterity? I
3: wouldn't have thought mm. so. Eve Smithingham is the only one that yeah. I would.
2: These are all categories we need to put on top trumps cards and get all the players <laughs> in the game. With that's that's your
0: card. These are your scores. I'm absolutely on board for that. So, as the EFA's uh, research assistant, I've put many polls onto Facebook, and I I do plenty of research. And I think there is no more valid reason to send very like loads of uh, emails harassing people for, let's say, speed of cut, or or we'll call it a volatility score or something. Okay. um and just get get that very important information out there i i I would love that i'm definitely on board
1: (laughs) players ability to play when hungover
2: oh there (laughs) are some ability better you know sunday sunday morning they'll always meet up on saturday and and uh, have a curry and a few drinks um so yeah there'll be a lot of people who are used to playing hungover i'm not sure who yeah whether you'd play better hungover it's a good category
1: but I feel like this might be a vicious su- cycle because now it like sh- the Northerns or the Londons, you know, people will go out to the pub afterwards, start yeah. playing top trumps. The drinks will come out and then <laughs> you know, then the ratings are going to need to change because suddenly more people are going to turn up to tournaments having played too much top trumps.
3: Yeah. They, um, but they need, to, they need to update every season anyway. So, you know. You can you can work on that on that one on that one category for a whole season.
2: <laughs> well, this is actually the new fives ranking system we're designing here, isn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah. Mark Williams, it's out.
2: <laughs> we're on top trumps. That's that's my plan for what needs to happen in fives. So we
1: may have gone a little bit off piece there at the end, but I think that we're all kind of agreed that. Nature may play a little bit of a role in terms of how it sets people up in terms of their personality or their physical build, which may help them at the beginning. But actually, if you provide people with the opportunity to become great sports players by providing them the facilities to play, not boxing them into a corner because they're not so good at the start, that anyone can be a great sports player. And actually it's much more about nurture. But thank you both. This has been a pleasure. I hope you've had fun. Everything you've said has been amazing and some really great stories. And Thanks. It's, um, it's been great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's been very enjoyable to do. Thank you very much. The nature versus nurture debate continues with champions across the men's and women's game exhibiting varying physical traits. But no conclusive set of physical traits has been observed that is mutual amongst all top players. This is a common phenomenon in sports without professional status. It has, however, been pointed out that players are fitter and faster in today's game, with agility and speed being preferred over strength and power. Will we see a common set of traits emerge in top five players in the future? Or will those that put the time in, creating living room courts and hazards, remain dominant?
1: Join us next time when we'll be speaking about unconscious bias in sports and how to make ourselves aware of our own biases in the future. See you next
2: time.